The short game is listener-supported on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show and join us on our Discord, head to theshortgame.net or patreon.com slash theshortgame. Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I'm Reagan Kelly, and I am joined this week by my one and only bro host, your brother, Shane Kelly. And this week, we are talking about Boomerang X, which is a brand new uh, first-person boomeranger from developer Dang! Exclamation. Dang! Dang! And uh, published by Devolver Digital. I'd never heard of Dang. I think this is their first game... Uh, or their first game with Devolver, at least. Um, but I was very excited to check this out because obviously, like, you know, we tend to like a lot of the stuff that Devolver publishes. And this mm-hmm. has this really, really interesting art style that just mm-hmm. immediately drew me in. I also then hit up the developer on Twitter just to ask how long the game was. And they said a couple of hours. And I was like, oh, Sweet. dang, dang, <laughs> exclamation point. Uh, so I was very excited about yeah. that. Uh, their, by the way, their web address is pretty great. It's dang.computer, which, you know, pretty oh, funny. Very good. Yeah. Well, they, they've got a, I think they've got a way with names. Uh, you know, Boomerang X is, is a freaking great name for this game. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I mentioned the art style, and that's the thing that Im- immediately drew me into this game. If you pull up a trailer for this game, which I absolutely recommend you do, you'll immediately see what I'm talking about. It has this style that I've only seen in a handful of other games, which is it is, you know, uh, uh, mostly uh, flat shaded first person 3D, but with an effort yep. to do these sort of textures that look, at least to my eye, a lot like sort of spattery looking um, like commercial pop art illustration with like a, a kind of a um, uh, you know mid-century modern kind of vibe to things like the color palettes and the and and the like texture um, it's hard to really nail down I would kind of summarize it as just sort of dirty cutouts and yeah, the, but the it, overall but in, you know vividly 3d is also well. oh absolutely I mean the the it's you know we had a, a kind of a spirited debate over whether or not this is low poly or not I I'm on the I would consider it kind of on on the fringe, but yeah, kind of low poly. Like it's not um, what you get when you have an art style like this is you get instantly recognizable forms. Like the shapes are really clear, uh, the colors are really bright, uh, except for the instantly recognizable enemies that are pitch black uh, for the yeah. most part. So with glowing uh, really red gems, which I wonder if those are their weak points. Do you think? Uh, really, really like great look to this game. And of course, the other big thing that you see on screen in all of the trailers, because it's also on screen the entire time you're playing the game, is your hands and your boomerang. You are playing as a mysterious person, question mark, who has hands that appear to be like mummy wrapped, I guess, is what yeah, they're going Yeah, I think for you... You start off the game uh, by being shipwrecked, and it's like, what is it? What is the? What is happening to this shipwrecked mummy? Uh, <laughs> Poor guy. Uh, you, so the first, the first images of the game are of a ship sailing towards an island, and then you kind of pull yourself up off of the beach. You uh, reach out in the sand in front of you. What's that? A weapon. It's a. It's a spear. You pick it up and you throw it aside because fuck that. That's not a boomerang. Uh, <laughs> I and know, boldly right? press on. Um, uh. <laughs> so, uh, so, so it's a, it's stylish. It is very stylish. And, um, you know, the art style carries a lot of the like initial impressions here, but this game is an extremely fluid, extremely fast paced arena first person shooter. Um, and it's not the kind of game that I play very much of. Uh, honestly, there's not a lot of games that are made like this these days, but it was an incredible blast. Um, so you do get this titular ban- uh, banana um, boomerang. You immediately get this, banana this, uh, this magical boomerang. And there's a number of sort of magical boomerang powers that you accumulate through the first handful of levels. You know, first off, you have this boomerang that you can throw out. And you can recall it. So you, you know, if you're playing on mouse and keyboard as I did, you right click to throw the, or you sorry, you regular click to throw the boomerang, and you right click to recall the boomerang, and it'll zip back to your hand. Or if you just let it fly around, it'll eventually zip back to you anyway. 
Um, and uh, very shortly, you also get some additional powers, the most important of which is the fling. So sick. You click to throw the boomerang and then click a second time and you fling in the direction of your boomerang. So rather than your boomerang zipping back to you, you are zipping over to your boomerang. Um, and when I first saw that power described, I thought it meant a sort of a like blink or teleport. But no, it's more sort of a spatial like uh, fast jump or leap. And the really amazing thing about this, combining your throw, your throw and your leap are on the same button. Combining those two, uh, the fling and the throw, means that you can essentially fly by throwing your boomerang out ahead of you, zipping towards it, throwing your boomerang again, zipping towards it. Um, I, I, I don't know if we need to get every single power, but the other I think that's really key here is that there is a uh, there's a sort of a slow motion power. I forget what it calls it in the game. Uh, flux, maybe. Um, yep. where while you're in the air and charging a boomerang throw, so you have to be holding your boomerang and like I think you can be down. on the ground. It's, it's when you're it's when you're charging the boomerang. Oh, okay. I, I might be wrong about um, that. Well, you're basically never you're on the that. ground by the time yeah. you unlock that ability. <laughs> That's true. That's actually That's the sweet thing. thing about this game. You th- this is a highly aerial game at so the the one of the first things i noticed about the game was the jump just even the basic jump is much more satisfying than than the jump in a lot of first person shooters which are usually like you know get 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 a little air in this one if you jump it you really are leaping forward that you get a lot mm. of lateral motion out of this jump uh and then once you unlock the um the the kind of the, the throw and slingshot maneuver and the sort of the slow-mo mode that you can go into by holding mm-hmm. a button down while you're aiming. That's the thing that really made this key is that like th- these levels are these arenas full of uh, various types of monsters that either fly or crawl along the ground. They might shoot lasers at you or have other types of attacks. Tons and tons of different very uh, fast-moving enemies. Um, but you're, uh, you're so mobile in this that you can be flipping yourself around boomerang style uh and you know slow mowing in the air to flip around 360 and fly off with a boomerang throw in a new direction it it, it just becomes this incredibly like thrilling natural like I, it, it's it's the most mobile I think I have ever felt in a first person game it's sort of a rarity there are not all that many like really interesting independent fps's uh so there's there's a fairly small number of fps's that we get to actually talk about on this show so i'm happy when we do one that i don't think we've ever covered that this wound up really reminding me of is from uh, all the way back in 2014 so this is kind of showing its age now is one called tower of guns did you ever play tower of guns no i remember you telling me about that one but i haven't actually played yeah Uh, Tower of Guns was kind of a roguelike FPS, um, and the reason it reminds me of this, they do take kind of a very, they're they're very different games, but the thing that they had in common is it was also a very aerial game where you were constantly surrounded by enemies that were basically always coming at you from every angle, Um, and in Tower of Guns, you kind of managed that by uh, collecting lots and lots of guns, as is kind of implied by the name, Um, but also you would get like a double jump and then a triple jump and then like a quadruple jump. And then at a certain point you would feel like you were never touching the ground in in one of these fun runs. This gives you that feeling from the very beginning. It it really does rule. It's, it's very, very unique. I think the other game I would probably compare it to, and this is high praise is super hot. Super hot is another indie first person shooter. That one has had lots and lots of attention over the years. It it also has kind of a kind of a playing with time mechanic. That's not that uncommon in single player FPSs for you to have some way to slow down time. In fact, I think it's almost a required feature these days. Um, but when you combine that level of mobility where you are uh, kind of moving so quickly through the level, you get to a point where so many of the enemies are flying and approaching you from all angles uh, and you are then kind of pausing time and looking around in every direction and having to manage your your space. That's where it really becomes so unique. This game, like it really, it really makes you think about the the space above you and below you, and 
even behind you in ways that m- is pretty rare in FPSs. You, you're basically ne- there's no such thing as cover in this game, uh, even from the ground. So the game is incredibly fun to play. Like, folk, it was a very smart decision to focus, like, laser focus on one extremely fun weapon, right? I could very easily have seen this game, like, uh, you know, start, you know, if they hadn't named it Boomerang X, maybe they would have, uh, uh, you know, expanded into other types of weapons or something, and it would have really changed the way this game uh, played. The, the, there's nothing more fun than a boomerang, except maybe a whip. But I think whips don't work so well in 3D. <laughs> so uh, boomerang. I would is. love to play a whip game. You know, we should play a whip game. Sorry to distract. Listeners, do you know a short game that is 100% about whips? <laughs> right in. Let I us don't. know. I, Please. I, I would like to play that. Um, but yeah, boomerangs. Great, great weapon. There's a reason they're in every Zelda. Um, although this boomerang, in my opinion, better. This is really reminiscent of the the movie... Krull. Do you remember Krull? Oh, yes. This is a Krull boomerang. Yes. So in the movie Krull... Uh, yeah, we didn't mention. It's not It's from... not the sort of like um, sort of roughly triangular like Aussie boomerang. This is a four... I mean, this is the boomerang X. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's shaped like an it X. It is shaped like, like an X. Curves. So the, the, the one in Krull was a five-pointed boomerang and they called it a glaive. So maybe I am... Uh, maybe I'm stretching this a little bit, but it's definitely Krull-esque. Um, and, uh, you know, a side note, maybe I should save this for what's making me happy this week, but Krull is great. If you guys have not seen the <laughs> 1983 uh, science fiction fantasy epic uh, that is Krull, you're you're missing out. You really are. Um, Speaking of science fiction fantasy epic, um, this game has a story. I kind of didn't expect it to, um, and it's pretty loose and you know not really vital to your enjoyment of the game but it might be worth outlining it very briefly um you, you are coming to this mysterious island full of dangerous uh you know enemy rooms uh on your little boat we don't really know who the main character is why they're wrapped in bandages etc you do see a large black sea serpent kind of approaching their boat as the storm rolls in at the very start so bit of foreshadowing yeah that maybe that was a foreshadowing of the final boss um Mm -hmm. uh, no spoilers there but yeah you you enter these sort of catacombs and it's it becomes clear pretty quickly that you are exploring the like the remnants of a lost civilization of gigantic mantis people um and uh I don't think, unless I missed something, because I, I could easily have just sort of not been paying close enough attention because I was so busy whipping my cool boomerang around. I don't really feel like I got a clear picture of like what true, like, I, I guess it's these, all of these horrible monsters that destroyed the civilization of Mantis people, but, um, and they were bringing, you know, maybe they, you know, delved too deeply and were bringing up too many gems. It seemed like they were very deeply concerned with mining for gems and all of these evil creatures have gems embedded in them somewhere as their, as their like a uh, weak point. So probably something to do with that. But then the, there's one NPC in this game and I won't go into too much, uh, detail about him because I don't know, he was always fun to see what he had to say, but Several times throughout the game, you meet a millipede creature, like a like a walking like like a millipede that stands up on his on his back legs, I guess, uh, named Tepan. Uh, and Tepan is this sort of uh, I don't know friendly guy with he's like seems like some kind of an like a, a meek adventurer. Uh, he doesn't want to get into all of these fights that you're getting into, but every time you see him, you know, he, he relates to you a little bit of his story and he apparently like fell through a portal into this world and he's got a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. about, you know, it, or he may, it seems like maybe he's kind of going from world to world. This, uh, it kind of implies that you are also a traveler between worlds yeah. somehow. What, what I think is kind of implied by the setting, because the, when you do travel from one scenario or area to another you're going through a series of portals that also kind of resemble descending through the roots of a great tree and so my interpretation of that is it was inspired by the world tree yggdrasil from viking mythology 
in particular because I mean, I, 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 do we care about spoiling what the final boss is? I, I don't think it's that big of a spoiler to say that the final boss is a cool ass dragon. Yeah, but so I, I think the the final boss in that line is also kind of inspired by Nidhogg, the uh, dragon or serpent that gnaws at the base of the world tree. So um, uh, that was kind of my take on it. Uh, Norse mythology meets bug people. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a pretty decent interpretation. Uh, it's clear that like story isn't the main focus here, um, but it does give you these like you know neat hints at something more going on that help to break up the the fact that the game is structured as pretty much uh, a beat to beat. Here is a series of enemy rooms uh, that you know will lock the doors, kill X number of enemies, and and then you get out. Um, Oh, another thing about the way those enemy rooms are structured that I think is really cool. Um, each time you go into one of these uh, arenas, uh, it will it has a certain number of phases, and it tells you how many. Mostly there's seven phases. Uh, and for each phase, you have to kill a certain number of, like, crowned enemies. So the, the room might be full of enemies, but only a certain num- number of them have these sort of glowing gold coins above their heads. And you get a little screen at the beginning of each of the phases that might have a certain number of those gold coins. Like you might see a, a screen that says, you know, phase one of seven, and it might have 15 gold coins. And that means that yeah. you have to seek out and kill all 15 of those sort of coined or crowned enemies. Um, and you can kill as many enemies as you want there, but you won't, you won't end the phase until you kill that, the, you know, the gold ones. Um, and uh, that's really cool because especially as the game starts adding on additional powers, many of the powers have sort of activations that have to do with multi-kills. So, for example, you know, if you kill multiple enemies uh, with a single boomerang throw, that gives you a charge that you can use to do a kind of a explosive or shotgun blast type of boomerang mm-hmm. throw. Um, and, uh, if you use that to kill a certain number of enemies, so if you, you know, use that to kill X number of enemies all at once, I think it's three or more, then you activate a different power. That's a sort of a sniper shot boomerang throw. Um, and, uh, having a room crowded with enemies lets you play with these sorts of multi-kill based powers. It's in the marketing material, I think here, uh, around the game. Um, and also it's the, so the special powers aren't really the boomerang. You keep the boomerang in your other hand, you have both hands on screen. So it's more like you're doing spells or something with your other hand. Yes. But if you look at the spells, they're tiny boomerangs. So I, I <laughs> tiny of... boomerangs, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the material, uh, on the website about this is basically says, uh, if you do cool shit with the boomerang and impress the boomerang, then it gives you spells to use. I love that. Uh, oh, that's extremely yeah, good. I, yeah. Um so I mean and that's kind of what it is. It's uh I mean obviously all your all the abilities are fairly based around uh this boomerang uh, which is the entire concept of the game. Uh I I hope more developers uh kind of follow this path of like finding one thing that really really works like uh boomerang rocket movement and you know just build a a, a whole simple game around it. Like the the functional like structure of the game is super simple and it's short um but that to me is what makes it so satisfying like mastering the boomerang is hard and it is something that you when you do it you will feel legitimately badass so yeah uh, yeah Im- impress that boomerang yeah do it impress the boomerang uh it took me so um the developer initially when i asked on twitter how long this game was he said probably about two hours i think he's probably better at it than i am because for me it took about four (laughs) um but that's still a really good length for something like this because it felt awesome the entire time Mm -hmm. Uh, every level was very hard the first time i would go through any one of them i thought i'll never be able to do it 30 minutes later i did it and i felt like a badass uh, mm-hmm. and I never, uh, never hit a wall with this one. Um, it, it just felt great the entire time and it didn't overstay its welcome. Yeah. I, I hit a wall on one level where I got stuck and I had to basically quit and come back the next day. I, I think that's pretty, pretty par for the course for me in, in, in a lot of games. Uh, but when I did come back to it, 
you know, I figured it out. Um, it, it's, it's a very propulsive game in terms of not just its movement, but like, you know, just moving through from level to level. Every level introduces a new area, but it also introduces new enemies. And that's really where the kind of the progression in the game is. You're you're getting new abilities. You're getting more uh, shields. That's another thing. You, you have like little extra health point shields. And then every level introduces a level up in the complexity um, around the enemies. Like you start off with very basic enemies. And... Those are basically little crawly spiders that go towards you. And then they start introducing enemies that fly. And from there, it really starts to scale up because um, I don't know how much how much do you want to spoil the enemies? Because that's kind of a big chunk of the meat of the game. Do we want to talk about all of them? No, not necessarily. Just they, there are a lot of really great designs. You know, they have each of them has like a mm-hmm. unique profile um, and they have different behaviors. Um, the, the key thing about all of them is that they have a gigantic red gem somewhere on them. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, it's about trying to exploit their movement to be able to get their gem. So, for example, there's these big dudes who stand and. Um, you know, just sort of slowly turn turn towards you, but you have to you have to move behind them fast enough that they're not able to to you know turn around towards you uh, and get the gem on their back. Or you might need to shoot them in the front first to stun them, and then get around and shoot the gem on their back. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's even you know there's sort of special, very like room filling enemies that have multiple gems, or that have a shield of their own that you need to kill some little other enemy that's projecting the shield. All sorts of little things like that. And learning those uh, enemy behaviors and all of that is is sort of the meat of the game. Uh, you know, you'll you'll need to play through these each individual time that you play through one of these arenas might be maybe I don't know uh, ten minutes, but you'll probably need to play through each one quite a few times in order to kind of get a sense of uh, enemy placement and behavior and all of that. Um, and you know, by the end, you're seeing all of these enemies that you've seen zillions of times, but you're seeing them in just like huge numbers and combinations so maybe you know dealing with the flying eye that shoots lasers at you was pretty simple but if you're dealing with that and swarms of other much smaller enemies flying at you like the uh, the flying squid enemies things like that in very large numbers, then suddenly it becomes quite a bit more difficult to get around behind them, for example. Um, so yeah, it, it it just does a really, really good job of building. And um, you know, I know we mentioned the final boss. I think this has an extremely good build. There's a few boss enemies in it that you know really ramp up the difficulty. And then the final boss was an absolute extraordinary. Blast. Yeah, we don't need to go into it, but like, man, it really paid off. I thought the final boss was like absolutely top top notch from both a like design and visual perspective. Like, oh, that was a really cool looking boss doing some really creepy things. Plus, it was like really fun and it was a twist on the play that I hadn't seen yet. Um, It it was just really, really great. Um, Great Mm -hmm. payoff at the end of this game. It also kind of highlights what I think is great about the progression of the levels themselves, which start off with essentially a lot of places to stand. And I think if there's a there's a progression throughout the game, it's that progressively there are fewer and fewer safe places to stand or be in the levels. Uh, so you start off kind of kiting the little spider enemies around in a fairly open room. Um, the rooms are never really ever that big, but then as you go, they, the spaces become a lot more vertical and also have a lot fewer safe places for you to stand. And by the end of the game, that it is all essentially taken away from you. There's basically nowhere safe to stand and, uh, you will have to master, uh, the ability to fly in order to, in order to succeed. Um, I, I think the enemy design is probably a lot of the enemies are kind of standard. Like a lot of them are, are exactly what you expect the instant you see them. Like the spiders are crawling towards you. The squid things are flying towards you. Um, for the most part, they're also very relentless. Like they, they, 
all the enemies are focused on you and they're going to be moving towards you or, or, or trying to attack you. Um, but there are several enemies and I won't spoil the final boss cause I guess we're not, we're not doing that. Uh, but there are several enemies that are a big wow moment. And the first one for me was this enormous giraffe, which oh, that thing is so cool. Yeah. It, it, is in itself it is a safe place to stand because it has a platform on its back it's the first enemy that has multiple gems on it so you have to shoot it in like five different places and it also really changes the game in terms of like the the level itself because it creates this hurricane storm from its head that can hit you with lightning and and changes the yeah, it divides the level bit. top to bottom. So like you if you yeah. you, know, you have to be able to attack the thing from above to hit the gem on its head, but it also creates this area that you can't go through. So um you know you you have to wait for it to stop doing that basically and then mm-hmm. get down below yeah. to 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 get its body. Um it, it's it's really cool uh and the fact that it sort of like slowly moves around the level and creates and then dissipates that like you know disc of clouds or whatever it is that's its its attack it's really cool design i i had a ton of fun with this one like i basically played this every chance i got from the minute i booted it up uh until I finished it and the game does have a new game plus, um, which I've only barely scratched. It basically does just sort of start you let you start the game again with, I think new enemy placements, all of the powers unlocked. um, And I think a higher difficulty, but I don't actually really know um, what all is in there yet. Cause I've only played maybe like 20 Mm -hmm. minutes of the new game plus, Um, but I'm looking forward to doing it because I definitely want to play through this a second time. Let me talk about difficulty for a second. Because since you brought up difficulty, um, this is starting to become really common in games, especially indie games that that have a lot of care for the player's experience. Um, But this game has a lot of options around accessibility and gameplay. And I think it's really nice to see on a game like this one. I left this game through the entirety of it at its kind of default difficulty, but... Mm -hmm. By the end of especially the final boss, my hand felt like it was going to fall off. So um, (laughs) I'm sure there are people out there who might think that this kind of intense arena shooter is going to be inaccessible to them. Uh, There are a lot of really good options. And one option that they have is you can toggle. um, I've never seen this exactly before on a shooter. There's a toggle switch that says... Um, optimized for mouse and keyboard or optimized for controller. I was playing with mouse and keyboard, so I left it at that. But they say on that, you know, this is also just a good way to adjust the overall experience to be a little bit more or a little bit less intense. And then on top of that, they had several other accessibility options and, you know, covering the usual gamut of uh, things that affect difficulty and also a lot of things that let you do, you know, everything from like turning on invincibility to turning off gravity to a lot of other things. So um, it it seems like the kind of thing where if the experience isn't working for you initially, uh, you can tune it a little bit so that you can get through it and, and have that fun two hour experience that is intended for this game. So uh, I like that. Well, we're talking about options. There's something that I think is really interesting about this game that I didn't really engage with, but I watched a YouTube video uh, that was covering it, and I wanted to mention it here because I think it'll be very interesting to folks. Um, Shane, have you ever seen anything about flick stick as an idea related to like um, gyroscopic controls for first-person shooters? Flick stick? No. Yeah, so this is an idea that I've seen around um, for a while. Uh, and it's basically a, a new approach to controlling first-person games with uh, with a controller uh, now that most controllers have gyroscopes built in. And for the most part, it's something that people do on PC by using input mapping software. Um, so the idea is that, um, and I'm not an expert on FlickStick. I've, not, I've, I've toyed around with something that does it a little bit once, but, um, I don't use this as, as a, I'm, you know, I'm primarily like a, I, I'm fine with normal mouse and keyboard for the most part. So I've never really investigated it deeply, but here's the thing. Um, this is from 
what I can tell, and according to this, this, uh, the gyro, gyro gaming YouTube channel, uh, which seems to be a, uh, you know, a channel with a number of subscribers that focuses on, uh, you know, gyroscopic, uh, game play, I guess. This is the first ever flick stick game that has it as a native option without needing to do input mapping. So if you are playing this game on PC with an, uh, with a PlayStation controller, uh, or I think also the Switch version will do this too, because the Switch version has um, has a uh, has a gyroscope. Um, then you can use the flick stick style controls in this, and what I think that means is that it does uh, m- basically mouse like aiming using a gyroscope. So not quite the same as like the uh, the like arrow aiming in Breath of the Wild, for example, but sort of like that, um, where you're you know tilting and moving your controls your controller gyroscopically to do mouse look. Um, the way that it makes this work is that uh, it has it, it dedicates a button on the controller to being uh, a, a button that disables that the gyroscope so that you can use it in a mouse like fashion. So just like when you're you know looking around with a mouse on your computer. Uh, and you might pick up your mouse to move it from place to place on your um, on your trackpad or on your your mouse pad. Um, it has that sort of approach with the the um, first person like camera control being basically all on your um, uh, on your gyroscope, and then the right stick being facing. So you can execute like a one eighty turn, for example, by flicking backwards on your right stick. Um, rather than like, for example, holding right and waiting until your character does a full rotation. Oh, I'm looking at a video of this right now, and it's I, I'm I'm seeing someone who's set this up in like Overwatch, and they're showing the kind of controller mapping, and they're basically able to turn and face almost instantly in any direction, which pretty disorienting, but cool. Yeah, it's one of those things that like this is a major rethinking of how to control a first person game with a controller with two sticks. Um, I think it's brilliant and really interesting. Um, I'm not sure. I think I'd really have to practice to like make that work for me. But this seems like the perfect game to give it a try, because first of all, it's a game where being able to like look around in three dimensions very quickly is vital. Um, but it's also a, you know, it's a game that obviously supports this type of controls natively. It's not the default for, for its, its gamepad controls, but it is a, it is natively supported, has a lot of little options in the settings to control things like gyro sensitivity. You can remap all of the buttons. Um, and, uh, it has, uh, like, it, like it's, it's a short enough game that like, if you wanted to experiment with this as a control scheme, you know, you can try this with mouse and keyboard. Obviously, that's how I played it, and it worked really, really well. Um, but if you want to give that style of controls a try, um, especially if you're playing on something like the Switch, this seems like maybe the best place to give that a try. Um, and I, I kind of want to like start this game over from scratch and try these flick stick controls because it really seems like a, an interesting approach that, if it works, might be a fun way to approach other first person shooters with a controller. I tend to prefer controllers. But I, uh, I, I've, you know, I do usually go back to mouse and keyboard for first-person games um, because that's, you know, all of the many reasons. And if I could get some of those benefits on a controller by adopting this kind of control method, this seems like it'd be really neat. No, that that is pretty interesting. I I have never even heard of this flick stick, and it seems like the kind of thing that, like, I mean, like the, as I'm googling it, a lot of what's turning up is like. Uh, wiki articles for people who are trying to hack this into FPSs. And if there is like some fundamental rethinking of like controller mapping and, and how to use controllers that could close the gap between map mouse and keyboard and, and controller users, I think that could be really good. I don't know if that's the kind, we might be a little too late. This might be, Controllers may well be the like QWERTY keyboard of inputs for games where like, you know, the fact that a Dvorak keyboard exists and is faster for typing or a cording keyboard exists and is faster for typing uh, is never going to overtake that as like a, 
a method for input. Yeah, because it's everywhere. Well, I think this at least has the benefit of being something that like you can adopt on existing controllers. So yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely am interested. So, um, and I'm, I'm very interested to see that this game, uh, built that right in. So, um, yeah, I, I know that's a bit of a, a digression, but I thought folks might want to know about that. If you're giving this game a try, maybe enable that and, uh, and fool around with that control scheme and see, uh, you know, see what these crazy gyro people are doing and, and if it maybe works for you, because if it does, uh, there seems to be a whole community out there of people who are mm-hmm. uh, playing games this way, mostly by setting up macros and, you know, input mapping software. But on the one hand, I'm looking at this and I'm 95% sure this is not for me. But then I also think about how cool the gyro controls felt when I was playing. Um, uh, what's that? nintendo shooter splatoon yeah so yeah maybe yeah maybe anyway i had so much fun with this game i I don't have much else to say about it other than that i strongly recommend folks check this one out it's going to be on uh pc and switch and i i'm sure it's coming to other platforms as well eventually but it's it's launching just on on pc and switch Uh, again it's from devolver and the developer is called dang exclamation point uh, and it's going to be uh, $19.99 on both of those platforms. It's launching on the 8th, which will probably be uh, already passed by the time you're hearing this episode. Yeah, that's a couple of days from now. Uh, should we talk about the fact that we're doing a pre-release game? Yeah, thank you to uh, Devolver and to the developer, Dang, uh, for sending codes of this one our way. Uh, we always appreciate that. And uh, listeners, if you have your eye on a game that you think is going to be short and good, and you're interested in us covering it in advance, uh, let us know. It's always trickier for us to do pre-release coverage or, you know, release day coverage, uh, because first of all, our format, you know, we tend to try to have played the entire game. Multiple of us usually need to have played the entire game uh, in order for us to do an episode on it. Uh, And also, when a game hasn't come out yet, it's often very hard to tell if it'll fit our, uh, our vibe and length requirements short is usually not in the ad copy yeah it's yeah it's not usually and so it can be very hard for us to do uh pre-release coverage so i want to specifically thank uh the developer dang for uh when i tweeted hey how long is this answering that question that is not something that a lot of developers do for a whole variety of reasons which i totally understand sometimes people are you know worried that if they talk publicly about how long their game is or how much time it takes to play in advance of release that maybe they're going to tick off some weird petty uh you know gamer brigade who thinks that it's not a value for money to be you know they want to spend three cents an hour of uh you know on their games um and like i totally get that and you know developers know their game and and that best but it always is great for me, when a developer is out front and center talking about, hey, I've got this awesome game and it is two hours long. And I'm like, hell yeah. And mm-hmm. then I go request codes because I want to play that type of game. So um, thank you once again to uh, the developer Dang and to Devolver uh, for providing codes for this episode. Hot dang. And before we wrap up, we are going to talk a little bit about what's making us happy this week. Uh, So, Shane, I've been talking for a while. You go first. What's making you happy this week? I'll tell you. uh, What's making me happy this week is I'm getting ready to start a new Dungeons & Dragons campaign. The world, at least in my part of the world, is starting to open up for uh, more in-person entertainment. And as a part of that, I am bringing back my D&D in-person campaigns. And uh, I'm doing something a little different this week. And I thought maybe I could kind of bend your ear about it and uh, use this as a chance to pick your brain a little bit. Uh, so mm, okay, what I, I have historically just, you know, I've got my group of players together and I know who's going to play and we have ideas about what we want to play. And, you know, I'll, I'll pick from a new book or whatever. Um, but this time I am trying something that I've seen others do, which is to present kind of a menu of options for the players about what campaigns they are interested in. And it's kind of like pitching a TV show. So the idea is I'm going to be bringing, um, you know, I, I've written up several different D and D campaign pitches 
And uh, maybe I'll go through a few of these. And I'm trying to narrow this down to three. So maybe you can help me kind of pick the best ones here. So uh, does that sound like it would make for good podcasting? I guess. Go ahead. I can always edit you out. Well, (laughs) yeah, that's right. And it's our podcast. I can I can talk about whatever I want. Last time I got to do what's making me happy. I talked about water for you talked for 10 minutes about sparkling water and it made me angry. Go ahead, Shane. Uh, Sparkling water is still great, by the way. So the the way I kind of was pitching these is to come up with kind of a bunch of high concepts and then to kind of break it down to, to figure out what it is that players can expect from the game. And so give an idea of the setting, uh, how much politics, how much role playing, uh, kind of what level of tactics in the game to expect, and also kind of what is the buy-in that's required from everyone in order to have a good time in the game. And by mm-hmm. providing a kind of a swath of options there, I want to I want to try and find something that satisfies everybody. Because really, D&D is so many different games. You can you could have a game that is uh, like really role play and political, or you could have like a total hack and slash. So the first pitch here uh, is one that I'm calling Keepers of Chaos. And the idea would be kind of a homebrew fantasy world where the players are in a wilderness that is under attack. And some ages ago, humans arrived in carts and ships and spread across these fertile plains and the wild folk of the world elves and dwarves and what have you um, withdrew to their fortresses and their burrows and things. And the humans and their new gods and kings don't have a respect for the natural world. Uh, The sages and oracles of these different people have seen that one day this new civilization will subdue the whole known world. And so the goal of the campaign would be to contain the humans or die. Uh, So this would be kind of a politics would be kind of medium here, medium amount of role play. It's kind of a fairly serious tone because it's kind of an anti-colonial idea. So the players kind of here would need to be willing to play non-human characters is kind of a buy-in there. And also, um, I think there's kind of an element of, uh, you know, when civilization is the enemy and the players are on the side of chaos, which is kind of a classic dichotomy um chaotic versus lawful in dnd kind of your methods are kind of natural and brutal but i don't necessarily want to run this as an evil campaign so that's kind of a tone it's a little bit of a narrow tightrope to walk so that's one of my ideas Uh, you sounded like you were about to jump in i i applaud the anti-colonialism but i worry about conflating uh the uh sort of native coded people with uh with uh, brutality and chaos this is this is a, a valid critique here, and that's something I think would be have to be discussed. And I, I don't want to uh, have real world analogs uh, for this. So I think the the ideal here would be things like furbolgs, which are like half giants and gnomes and things like that, or um, you know wood elves. Things that are, or in fact, I think this would be the perfect campaign for players to play as goblins. And to kind of issue any kind of uh, kind of real world colonial narrative, which I don't know that I could really pull off. So, uh, I, I if if players all wanted to go a hundred percent goblin in this, actually that would make it work really well. I would love to have this be a campaign where all my players were goblins, but ideally we'll probably pick uh, maybe three or you know three to five non human races to populate the wilds. Um, and I think it would be also a really good campaign for druids. It sounds like fun. Uh, anyway, the second concept is more of a sea adventure. It's kind of a salt and sea adventures at the high sea kind of thing. And the concept on this one is just kind of um, for the characters to all be crew members on a newly constructed trade ship that's about to take its first voyage. And this one, I think, would work well just in the standard Forgotten Realms setting Uh, The buy-in on this one would be tactics because uh, naval combat is weird and kind of hard to do really well in D&D, which I think you can attest to. We've actually played some uh, naval combat in our game. So uh, this means this would I think I'd have a a, I've had some practice at that now. 
so I don't know. What do you think about, about that as an idea? I mean, potentially fun, but yeah, I think the naval combat thing, if it were my choice, I would avoid uh, like ship combat in a D&D game. I know a lot of people, they love for their party to get an airship or get a boat or whatever. Um, and, you know, it, it opens up, um, you know, the ability to like travel the world in a way that you don't usually do in D&D. But I think that centering around ship to ship or otherwise, you know, boat based combat like mm, i don't know maybe this is just my experiences and not to not to um uh, they were with you as a dm so no mm-hmm. not to uh not to uh, take away from your dming skill but i've never really thought that worked particularly well in dnd you're you're right about that and, and the, the thing is that um you know the the distances at which ships engage with each other is quite long and like the you know, so so you you and breaking down that kind of combat into a moment to moment way that that uh, you know combat in D anD D does, um, it's not a perfect fit. So you're right; like there are a lot of things that are great about being able to have a boat and go anywhere. Uh, it really opens up a sort of sandbox style campaign where you see a lot of the world, and they'll probably would be taking orders from an NPC captain at the start of the adventure. But one of them would probably wind up as captain before too long, and then really you open up the freedom to explore at that point. But mm-hmm. uh, not only can naval combat be kind of hard, but it's also kind of mechanically swingy. Like, what happens if they just use fireball every time and set enemy ships alight? Uh, and what what happens if someone turns that tactic back on them? It can be very kind of mechanically swingy. So uh, that can be a sort of a tricky thing with which I think some homebrew rules would be required. Yeah. I think the other thing is it just sort of transforms your, um, your abilities. Like, you know, if I'm playing, I don't know, a barbarian and my, my strength is hit things with sword, but like, then we're in a, in a ship to ship combat thing. And my ability gets boiled down to when do I light the fuse on the cannon? That just doesn't feel right. You know, it, it loses all of the like character that I've kind of built up with my, with my character and kind of reduces everybody to like, it, it becomes like a timing exercise or like who's where on the boat. I don't know. It, it never worked for me personally, but I think mm-hmm. maybe with the right rules and the right DM and the right group, it could be fun. And setting out from the beginning. So this is why I, I for each of these, I'm kind of considering what is the player buy-in here. So offering a, a menu of options, like maybe that isn't something that someone is interested in. Uh, but if it is, I think there's a lot to be said for it. And people would build their characters from the get-go to to kind of take that into account. And we would have to have some discussions around rules. Um, yeah, and I don't want to kind of run through too many of these. Uh, I have a couple more, uh, but kind of quickly. Uh, the next one is the idea of kind of a knightly order. I've always been very interested in doing something that's more Arthurian, uh, kind of an Arthur and quest for the grail kind of thing. And that would be a fairly high politics campaign. So with a fair amount of high you know, politics and role-playing and kind of de-emphasizing the tactics, um, you know, and there's a lot you can do with that. I think it would be fun as a group to kind of um, define what is the knightly order. And it always is nice to have some kind of unifying organization that all the player characters are a member of and the kind of political intrigue around that organization or or state can be kind of interesting. So that's an idea that I re- would, really would like to explore with the right group. I think the player buy-in on that one has to be uh, kind of just an interest in a very particular kind of game. Uh, doing politics in an RPG is not everyone's cup of tea. And so the right group is is going to be important for that. And then the last one I have is I and kind of related to the game we covered this week. I, I love the idea of the world tree. In fact, so this game kind of had a world tree with the, the dragon at the bottom of it. Recent, there was recently a, a Magic the Gathering set, which, you know, ding, ding, I got to mention it, uh, mention Magic on the show, called Kaldheim, that was based on Norse mythology. And the idea of a bunch of different worlds connected by a world tree, uh, kind of nine worlds in Norse mythology, you know, all kind of stacked one on top of another. There's this kind of analogy to me of those kind of stack of worlds with the idea of dungeon levels. So I would really like to try a 
kind of a multiverse dungeon delve where as the players are going down through the levels of the dungeon to the the base of the world tree, uh, they are kind of passing through. Every level is a totally different realm or a totally different world. And uh, that is kind of, you could do kind of a gonzo mega dungeon with kind of just wild shit happening every session. Um, and, you know, that that would be very contained. Probably, this is probably the most hack and slash idea that I have. Uh, but just having a, a frame or a structure to just absolutely go nuts and just throw whatever, you know, while meanwhile having like a really recognizable structure to hang the ideas on this idea of like moving through different worlds by traveling the world tree. I really like that idea. So, so maybe that's another one. I don't think there's a ton of player buy-in required here. I think almost any kind of character could fit here because you're going to be visiting very different worlds or planes. Um, So, so that's kind of my last one. And what I'd like to do is to kind of pick three of these, which means uh, kind of, I just listed like five ideas and two of them I would like to cut. I, I am of the opinion that three is the right number for someone to pick from. So I don't know. What do you think? Which, which three would you put on the menu? Um, I'm not sure. I guess I'd probably put the, um, so you're not a fan of the ocean going adventures. So we can take that one out. If it was me, I'd probably be voting for the nightly order one, you know? I think that's probably the uh the the style I like, but you know how I play D&D. I like to build paladins. I like to have a, a high-minded goal in mind and I like to to go uh kill evil creatures. Um you know, I I don't I don't want to do the and I I like the politics side of it too. Um I don't necessarily want to do the like I, I don't want like ultra in-depth tactics, but I'm willing to, you know, get in fights for the Lord or whatever in a, in a, a D and D game. So I don't know, that'd be the kind of, that'd probably be the one that I would pick. Um, I think also, you know, doing something anti-colonial sounds fun and interesting. Um, but I think that it, it might potentially be fraught, uh, if everyone wasn't on the same page about how that was supposed to work. So I think that might be one I would include with the right group, but I'm not sure how you tell that group is the right group in advance. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think for that one in particular, the buy-in is, is going to be around finding ways to drive back humans from your lands without resorting to like needlessly slaughtering their civilians. Um, and you know, and, and also, you know, keeping, keeping the whole concept, uh, from, from becoming too much of a, I don't know, problematic mess. Yeah, but it is it is something that still has a lot of appeal for me because I just love the idea uh p- players love to play as monsters or as monstrous mm. races. And 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 pe- people love to play like gorilla uh you know resistances too. Absolutely. Like the dragonborn and the tiefling are are weirdly like the most popular races in D&D today and it, you would not think so uh because those are the ones that they were added for people who specifically want to play like dragons or devils. So, so a lot of people don't want to play as humans, but do they want to play against humans? Kind of an interesting question. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, that's, that's yeah. pretty interesting. I, 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 I love, um, you know, the more organized side of D and I only ever sort of play with you. So I never really see the, the, the side that you see with, you know, running games for strangers or for, Ideally, not strangers, but uh, well, yeah. Hopefully, they quickly become friends. But uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's what's making me happy this week. And thanks for running through that with me. But uh, yeah, what's making you happy this week? Uh, let's see. Uh, the the main thing I can say is that I've, I I've mentioned I think on Twitter and elsewhere that I started playing the new Mario Golf, and I've talked about golf games and how much I love golf games on the show enough to you know make anybody hate me. <laughs> but I really do love golf games. And I guess the all I wanted to say was that, um, well, two things. One, at first, I had a really bad reaction to the new Mario Golf. I, I think there's sort of a, I don't know if it, I, it's not a right to call it a meme, but like, I think a lot of the initial response to the new Mario Golf um, was pretty negative. And yeah, I've seen I, that. 
I was there too. Um, I think the game puts its worst foot forward. But once I got past some of that stuff, I think it's actually the one of the best Mario sports titles in years. Um, I, I'm not takes here. I know. Um, so the the game has these new modes that took a while to grow on me. Um, and the adventure mode, like first of all, I I was I was a little skeptical about its like adventure mode, which isn't on level with like the everyone wants to compare it to the Game Boy Advance Mario game, right? And um, uh, or Mario Golf, and that game is was that still incredible. the uh, kind of high point for the series. Is I, that's what you've told me? You really liked the role playing mode or whatever you call it, the like campaign mode in that game. Yeah, um, I, I loved its sort of adventure mode or whatever, where, you know, you, you have a character and you have stats. And honestly, I think what I really I, I don't want, like, I don't need anything super advanced out of that. Uh, it's not like these things are telling stories that are any more interesting than I want to be a good golfer and eventually beat Mario at golf. Wouldn't that be cool? That's all the story it needs. All it really needs to do, the adventure modes and these kinds of things, is like give you a reason to play the next round of golf. So, you know. Hey, uh, you know, there's a difference between a game just giving you a menu that says, hey, do you want to play nine holes? Do you want to play 18 holes? Pick a course, which, you know, which type of golf mode do you want to play or a an adventure mode where you have a character who is going, you know, up through their career or who is, you know, going on to the next thing. And it's the game is telling you, like, your next thing is to, you know, win your bronze badge uh, by playing, uh, you know, winning a, a tournament of whatever type of golf, right? And having that structure is pretty important to me. It gives me like, what is the next thing that I'm supposed to do? Um, it kind of draws, the, you know, strings these things together. But the thing that this game, like, I think the reason it's getting such bad reviews is that it really, at least early in this adventure mode, it really leans heavily on its two new golf modes. Uh, one is called speed golf, which took a little while to grow on me. I now like it, but at first, I don't think it made a very good impression. And then it, the other mode, which is called cross-country golf, which still hasn't won me over. Speed golf is the mode that I've heard the most about, uh, which is where, I guess, the titular rush of this is Super Mario Rush, Super Mario mm-hmm. Golf Rush. The the characters, uh, in, you swing, your your ball goes flying and then you just literally haul your butt all the way to the whole, like running the whole way, like collecting coins and hearts, which to me sounds like, I don't know, I, I kind of like the the kind of back and forth of a of a golf game where, you know, you, you swing and then you see the ball like go towards the hole. Oh, you're, you're not doing much. You're just watching the ball go and you're like, ah, there it goes or dang, it's in the rough or whatever. So. Yeah. Uh, I think that the the thing that this game loses when you play the speed golf mode is that you don't get that like moment of drama when the ball is like, you know, you get that, that nice camera angle on the ball arcing through its flight and then a new camera angle as the ball lands and you, you know, you see it roll and you're, you know, you're looking at a close up of the ball saying like, stop, stop, stop. But no, it rolls off the green into the rough or something like, or, you know, seeing it up close as it goes near the hole, but maybe it doesn't go in or it does. And you like this game, because you're, you're, you know, you hit the ball and you're immediately then have to run. You're not watching the ball do any of that. And there's a real loss there. Like I, I, you know, I, you lose a lot of the drama of a golf game by not Mm -hmm. giving close-ups of the ball, doing whatever the most interesting thing that it does is, which is like, where does it land? Um, But once I kind of got used to that, everything else about that mode is actually pretty fun. Um, and it does have the standard golf mode that is just as good as it always was, if not better. It's really, really well done. The courses are pretty good. Um, I'm not sold on the cross country golf thing, which its premise is like, uh, you know, the, there's a golf course full of like holes. Um, you have, you start at one end and you have to, um, get a certain number of holes, within a certain number of swings, let's say like nine holes and you have 40 swings. Um, but wherever your ball falls, like if you get into a, into a hole, you then have to tee off from that spot. So, you know, irrespective of the layout of the golf course, you're not like going hole one to hole two to hole three. You're just sort of like, 
hitting balls across a whole golf course. And at least when it starts this, you're playing on this very mountainous course and it gets very frustrating because it can be very hard to like get the ball to where you need it to be. If there's all these different changes in elevation and there's rocks in the way and everything, it's not, it's not that good. I, I, I could take or leave it. But, um, anyway, I, I guess what's really making me happy is that, um, I had thought that this game wasn't for me for a little while, but it very much grew on me. And now I have three golf games that are out right now that are really, really good. It is an absolute embarrassment of golfing riches. Um, there is the clap hands golf on iOS on Apple arcade. That is phenomenal. There's the, um, uh, PGA tour 2k 21 on all of the big consoles and also on PC. Uh, that is like a real heavy duty simulationist golf game. That is also absolutely great. And now I'm playing Mario Golf on my Switch. And now that I've gotten over the hump with that, I'm enjoying it too. And now I have a great golf game on literally every piece of electronics that I touch. (laughs) It's ridiculous. So um, I'm just, what's making me happy is that uh, I've just, I'm playing a whole lot of golf games right now, man. And every one of them has something to recommend it. And um, it's, I'm just feeling feeling real hashtag blessed, I guess, with all this golf. Listeners will take note that the name of our podcast, The Short Game, is actually the name of a golf documentary, uh, and we compete with them on Google uh, for a search result height, even though that documentary is like a zillion years old. And uh, yeah, I think that was on purpose uh, by Reagan. Yeah, I don't think point. I didn't know when I named the show that it was a golf pun. I definitely did. Um, I didn't yep. make a big point of it at the time and still don't, but uh, I do I do love my golf games. I, I think for these kind of sports games, the thing that I kind of would like would be if they did more of the... If they had a way to do the tropes of like sports movies or TV or anime where like... You know, the 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 time like time slows down while the game is in play and that you use that as a opportunity to break away for a, a whole character arc in a flashback. Uh, that'd be kind of cool. You know that I played that uh, that soccer game, anime soccer game. Um, Captain Tsubasa How was that? Did that do that? The new champions. It 100 percent did that. I, I loved it. It has a it's an art. It's a sort of a golf RPG. Um, it has sort of two campaigns in it uh one where you're playing as soccer Captain though Tsubasa. right you said golf it is soccer right? oh sorry did yeah I? um yeah it's a soccer game yeah um uh, but yeah it's uh, like it actually really did that thing like it, it had like the mode where you're playing as captain Tsubasa and you basically play out um like a season of the anime and then there's the other mode where you like create your own character that i didn't quite enjoy as much but like when you're playing this this game that's like basically like you're like an anime like a season of a shonen soccer anime um and like all of the characters have like their special shot and every one of those shots like you know cut to uh, a giant ethereal bird flying in behind the character to like grip the soccer ball in its talons and throw it towards the goal that kind of stuff a plus and in between every single uh match it would introduce you to the team that you're playing against and you'd learn, Oh, well, you know, their, their, their team captain, he, his girlfriend is, is with them and, uh, and she's sick or, you know, whatever it is like that you, you got, <laughs> you, you got these backstories um, and you got the story of the, of the team like coming together. And uh, I don't know, it was great. I would love to see more of that like strung through like a golf game would be perfect for it. You know, where's my, Where's where's where do I get the the scene where my character has a rivalry with Yoshi and you know comes to me in the at the at the you know back at the the pro shop and you know kicks my golf bag over and you know we get into a fist fight in front of the golf carts or something like I want that stuff too um, I want the drama but you know no Mario Golf does not does not do that even if it's adventure mode it doesn't let me get into a fist fight in the parking lot with Yoshi. Yeah, I would like I would like it if like they basically redid Happy Gilmore but with the Mario <laughs> cast. I could see that too. You know, there's a lot of directions you could take this, but yeah, you know, anyway. Um oh, I'm really really I have high hopes for um sports story. 
uh, coming out from the Golf Story developers. Golf Story was so funny and charming and was like almost there for what I'm talking about. Like, you know, it had it had an overarching story, but there was just also so much random stuff to do. Um, so I can't wait to see what they're what they're doing next. It's uh, it's not exactly uh, Captain Tsubasa, but it's also, uh, you know, definitely more than what Mario Golf is doing. So I'm really looking forward to that one. You know, the, every time the, the developer comes up for it for air, it's like, oh, another delay. But um, I think it's this year, man. So I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Well, listeners, uh, thank you for joining us on this episode of The Short Game and for toughing it out through that extended What's Making Us Happy this week uh, and listening to both of our little obsessions there. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at underscore short game, or you can find our, our show on the web at www.theshortgame.net. Uh, you can also find us on Patreon. This show is listener-supported on Patreon, patreon.com slash theshortgame. Every one of our patrons gets access to our discord which is where we gather to talk about the show we plan episodes there we chat about the games we've been playing Um, people make fun of me mercilessly there if you want to get in on that action you can come join us on discord just go to patreon.com slash the short game and support us at even just a dollar a month that'll get you in the doors um by the way, also, we've begun releasing episodes early for our patrons, um, and that's something we were able to do because we've adjusted to a new and more sustainable schedule. Uh, so we're still doing the show every Monday, uh, but we're recording a little farther in advance, leaving ourselves a little extra cushion. So uh, if you would like, uh, I, you know, I don't expect that it uh, is a, a huge enticement, but if you'd like the show uh, a few days early, uh, then you can also support us and get access to a special Patreon feed and get early access to uh to episodes uh unless they're like this one where we're hitting an embargo so uh sorry about that one but uh for future episodes uh you can find me on twitter at reagan k that's r-a-y-g-a-n-k and Shane, where can people find you you can find me on twitter at 8-bit shane and listeners thanks so much once again for joining us on this episode of the short game